Prologue Part 4.3 The Death of the Republic Hello and welcome back to 202 Decades of Western History. Last time, Hannibal led his army in the legendary crossing of the Alps and defeated army after army sent to stop him by Rome. But no one was able to recover better from a loss than the Romans, and they refused to surrender. They survived and withstood Hannibal's campaigns in Italy for years, slowly wearing him down. After clearing the Carthaginians out of Iberia, Scipio led a Roman army to Africa to stop the Carthaginians on their home turf. Ultimately failing in his attempt to destroy the Romans, Hannibal had to be recalled home. Scipio Africanus earned his name and defeated Hannibal, leading to the surrender of Carthage. Now with total control of the western Mediterranean, the Romans turned to the east. Over the course of four wars, they expanded their control over the Greeks, integrating their territory and then their culture into their growing empire. The expansion of this empire led to huge influxes of wealth, helping the elites in Rome to grow massively rich. The growing divide between rich and poor led many Romans into destitution. Against the conservative optimates, other politicians called populares began to clamor for land redistribution and help for the poor. The optimates violently resisted reforms, and force began to be used in place of law. The ingredients for civil unrest were in the pot, and with Marius and Sulla, they would boil over into open civil war. Sulla's faction had won and entrenched the interests of the optimates into power for a generation. But the problems that led to the rise of the populares had not disappeared when Rome was purged of their presence. The first round of civil war had ended, but the Republic was still wobbling on a dangerous course. Sulla had saved the Republic from a descent into radical populism. His legacy brought his protégés into leadership. The Senate, though, instead of holding their power tightly after the oligarchic victory in the first round of civil wars, turned their attention away from government and toward making themselves wealthy and comfortable. Vote-buying was everywhere, and bribery of all sorts was rampant. It was kept under the table, but it was an open secret. The courts, too, had become corrupt beyond repair. Part of the reform efforts of the past decade was aimed at fixing this by giving power to the common people to act as juries. But the Senate had denied them, and Sulla's dictatorship had closed the lid on these reforms. Worse still for the common people was the fleecing of the provinces, through harsh tax collecting and usurious loans. Can't pay your tax? That's fine. We'll loan you the money on the small price of 12 to 40% interest. As the historian Durand points out, the governors served in the role without pay, usually for only a year, and had to accumulate enough wealth from their province to pay off their debts, make enough money to buy off a seat in a new position, and to fund their lavish lifestyle expected of the senatorial class. Mismanagement was common. Only the most ambitious men took a real interest in governing the state, and it was they who led the republic on another step toward empire and dictatorship. Their ambition fueled further expansion. Men who dreamed of making a name for themselves could do so by earning fame and clout for their conquests for the glory of Rome. We've already briefly met two of the most important figures of the next few decades. Each of them had served under Sulla in his civil wars. The two men were Crassus and Pompey. Their ambition and rivalry would define the post-Sulla, pre-Caesar era. We'll start our story with Pompey in Hispania. The Iberian Peninsula at this time was controlled by the Romans, mostly along the Mediterranean coast, 
split into two provinces, Hispania Ulterior in the south and Hispania Citerior in the east. Following Sulla's defeat of the Marius Cinna faction in Rome, a few of these populares had escaped to Hispania and began to make trouble for the Roman government. Chief among them was Quintus Sertorius. He recruited the local Lusitanians and Celtiberians along with Roman soldiers. Using guerrilla tactics, he soon controlled much of Iberia. He even went as far as creating his own new senate made up of many exiled populares. In the year 77, Pompey was chosen to bring a proper army to Hispania and end the rebellion there. Despite initial stumbles, Pompey was able to defeat the Sertorians in two large battles, and with his followers losing faith in him, Sertorius' second-in-command, Perperna, assassinated him. But Perperna too was soon defeated by Pompey, and the war there came to an end. Instead of sticking around for a victory lap in Iberia, Pompey had to race back to Italy. In the year 73, a huge slave revolt had broken out. The Roman government had tried to stamp it out before the sparks could spread, but had so far been unsuccessful. The revolt had begun with 70 slaves rebelling in Capua, but had spread and over 120,000 had joined. The local militia had been unable to put them down, and even the first legions sent against them had been defeated. There were several leaders, but the former gladiator Spartacus stands out among them. This was the Third Servile War, the first two being large slave revolts in Sicily. Spartacus considered marching on Rome after defeating a consular army, but his men lacked the engineering skills to breach the city's defenses. Instead, the slave army ravaged southern Italy. After the consular defeat, few men wanted the, uh, opportunity to face and lose to Spartacus. Crassus finally took up the task himself. Helping his case was his immense wealth. He had grown rich as a real estate speculator and was now Rome's richest man. He agreed to pay for his army with his personal wealth and he funded an army of six legionaries, a huge army. He combined his men with the survivors of the previous defeat and went out to crush the revolt. Spartacus's army had been heading north, perhaps to escape Italy where they could gain their freedom for good. But Crassus headed them off, and in some small battles, he was able to defeat the slave army. Spartacus turned his army around, and they marched south, into the toe of the Italian peninsula. Reaching out to pirates from Cilicia and Anatolia, Spartacus hired them to take him and the core of his army across the straits to Sicily, to incite more revolts and gather more soldiers there. But Spartacus fell victim to one of the classic blunders. He trusted a Cilician when death was on the line. After they had been paid, the Cilician pirate ships slipped off without him or his army. Spartacus was now trapped, surrounded by water on three sides and the approaching army of Crassus on the last side. Worse, word arrived that Pompey's seasoned army would soon be arriving from Hispania to crush the slave revolt. Spartacus tried negotiating with Crassus, but Crassus denied all negotiations. He was eager for the fame and career opportunities that would be his if he defeated the slaves before help arrived. The two sides met, and the discipline of the exhausted slave army quickly began to break down. Small, independent groups would charge the Roman lines, but they were each cut down. Spartacus attempted to rally his troops and personally charged at Crassus, but he was slain, and with their leader dead, the battle became a slaughter. Most of the slaves were killed. Of the survivors, 6,000 were crucified, their bodies hanging at intervals along the Appian Way.
Crassus had his victory. Back in Rome, Crassus and Pompey both returned home as victors. They should have both been treated as heroes, but it was only Pompey who received a triumph. You don't get a triumph for beating a handful of slaves, even if Rome had been in danger. The two were both elected as consuls, though, in 70 BC. This further fueled Crassus's jealousy. Pompey was only 35, too young, according to Sulla's cursus honorum, to be eligible to be consul. But the citizens elected Pompey anyway. He was popular and a natural leader. What could they say? The young man was great. Pompey's fame rose further in 67 BC when he quickly solved one of Rome's growing problems. For the past couple of decades, piracy had been a growing problem across the Mediterranean. As we saw with Spartacus, these pirates from Cilicia, the region of southeast Anatolia, had almost saved the slave revolt. They had also aided both Sertorius and Hispania and Mithridates of Pontus in harassing the Romans. They even threatened the grain supply sent from Sicily and North Africa to Rome. They had become so bold as to raid the key port of Ostia, just a few miles outside of Rome. Other commanders had tried and failed to put an end to the piracy. The people were fed up with the uncertainty of their food sources and the disruptions to business. When Pompey volunteered to try his hands, a sweeping law was passed giving him an extraordinary amount of power to end the pirates. This Lex Gabidia gave Pompey control over the entire Mediterranean and Black Seas and over all land as far as 80 kilometers from their shores. This command would last three years, and his budget was limitless. The consuls in the Senate opposed this, of course. It gave Pompey an unprecedented amount of power and set the stage for future power grabs by Caesar and Augustus. The law was passed anyway. The people demanded a solution by any means. With his new power, Pompey had 500 ships built and recruited as many as 120,000 men. He sent 15 commanders out to patrol the sea, canvassing it to prevent the pirates from hiding in a corner while the navy was somewhere else. In just 40 days, he had cleared all of the pirates from the western Mediterranean. Next, they cleared the waters of the east, except for around Cilicia, where the pirates had their base, attempting to make them all flee there. Now that the pirates were bottled up, he surrounded their stronghold. Pompey's reputation for clemency, which he had gained in Hispania, paid off here. The majority of them surrendered without a fight, and true to his reputation, Pompey separated them and resettled them rather than killing them. Pompey the Great had done what no one else had been able to do in only a few months, making the Mediterranean, what had nearly become the Roman lake, safe for commerce once again. While Pompey cleared the sea, our old friend Mithridates of Pontus began to make trouble again for Rome. He was the eastern Greek king whose actions 20 years earlier had led Sulla to be given command to stop him, only to have his command stripped away, leading to the conflict which began the Sulla-Marius Civil War. The need for Sulla to get back to Rome had cut the First Mithridatic War short and gave the Pontic Kingdom a favorable treaty. Not long after, a second war began when the Romans became suspicious that Mithridates was preparing for war, and they decided to strike first. But Mithridates got the better of the Romans in battle, and the Romans made peace. In Bithynia, the Greek kingdom to the west of Pontus and north of Pergamum, the king Nicomedes had died and willed his kingdom to Rome just as Adelaide of Pergamum had done with his own kingdom a century before. The suddenly Roman province of Bithynia bordered Mithridates. 
In the Third Mithridatic War, Mithridates invaded Bithynia and made provocative moves against Roman territory elsewhere in Anatolia. Pontus may seem a small problem for Rome, being a remote kingdom in the northeast corner of Anatolia, but it caused Rome an outsized amount of trouble. See, the piracy that Pompey had dealt with, and the Sertorian War that Pompey had dealt with, and the challenges to Rome and Anatolia were not isolated threats, but coordinated moves between Mithridates and these other players. With his small kingdom, Mithridates had to use these other enemies of Rome in concert with his own moves. While Rome was distracted in Hispania, Mithridates made his initial moves in Anatolia and had been nearly unopposed. He soon conquered considerable territory, reaching all the way to Pergamum and the Aegean Sea. Once a full Roman army could be spared, under the command of Lucullus, it arrived in Anatolia and made quick work of the Pontic army. Mithridates had to flee. Lucullus chased him back to the Pontic heartland. His army chased Mithridates across the Black Sea coast and captured the capital, Sinope. But the Pontic king slipped away and made it to Armenia. Armenia at this time was a powerful kingdom. King Tigranes II was the son-in-law of Mithridates and gave refuge to the Pontic king. When the Romans demanded he hand over Mithridates, Tigranes, not wanting to look like merely a puppet of Rome, declined, and war between Rome and Armenia began. In the year 69, Lucullus marched his army across the headwaters of the Euphrates River and entered the heartland of the Armenian kingdom. They headed directly for the new Armenian capital of Tigranocerta and put it under siege. Tigranes, who had been away dealing with the remnants of the Seleucid Empire, had to suddenly race home. Arriving outside the capital city, he put the Romans to battle. Although the Armenians outnumbered the Romans more than two to one, once the Romans were able to withstand the charges of the cataphracts, heavily armored cavalry, they easily pushed back the soft remainder of the Armenian army, which was made up of light infantry and raw recruits. The Romans had won an epic victory in a distant land. They captured the city and looted it. But the Romans hadn't gotten what they wanted yet. King Tigranes and Mithridates retreated north and gathered another army. The Romans defeated this army too, though. But with winter arriving, Lucullus's troops mutinied and refused to go any farther. Lucullus had to withdraw. The Armenians now employed a strategy similar to what the Romans had used against Hannibal, avoiding conflict. The next spring, in 67 BC, Mithridates suddenly popped back up in Pontus and recaptured several cities. The Romans had not been ready for such a move. The commander closest to Mithridates engaged him in battle, but was badly defeated. Lucullus now tried to bring his army from Armenia back west to deal with Mithridates, but again his men mutinied, and while they agreed to march back to Roman territory in Anatolia, they would not fight Mithridates. Apparently, Lucullus's brother-in-law, Publius Clodius Pulcher, had been paid by Pompey to spread dissatisfaction among the army. Pompey wanted to be the one controlling the fight against Mithridates, and now, with Mithridates and Tigranes both recapturing territory, Pompey was finally given command of the war in the east. Riding high after his victory over the pirates, Pompey headed for Anatolia. With Pompey the Great now in the area, Mithridates retreated into the center of his kingdom to try to stretch the Roman supply lines, but this was unsuccessful, and Pompey caught up with the Pontic king and defeated him at the Battle of Lycus. Mithridates tried to flee to Armenia again, but Tigranes would not have him this time. Instead, he fled north, along the east coast of the Black Sea, into the Caucasus of modern Georgia, and eventually made it all the way around the sea to Crimea, where a Greek colony could be found. 
Pompey marched his army into Armenia, and Tigranes, still weakened from his losses to Lucullus, sued for peace and met with Pompey. The Armenian kingdom became an allied client state of Rome. Next, Pompey led his army northward, following the route of Mithridates and subdued allies of Pontus before heading south again. The Romans never caught up to Mithridates, but after his plans to build an army and attack Italy annoyed enough of the nobility, he committed suicide. Just as he had done with Sertorius and the pirates, Pompey had quickly solved yet another threat to the Republic. He wasn't satisfied just solving problems, though. Conquest was on his mind. Still wielding a great deal of authority, thanks to the special powers granted to him, Pompey now entered Syria. Syria had been home to the great Seleucid Empire, but since the Romans encountered them at the Battle of Magnesia in 190 BC, the Seleucids had drastically weakened. Not only had they lost Anatolia to the Romans in that battle, but they had lost Iraq and much of Syria to a new power which had arisen in Persia, the Parthians. We'll hear much more about them before long. Along with civil wars in the Parthians, the Judeans in the south of what remained of the Seleucid Empire also caused problems. In the 140s, a Jewish rebellion led by the Maccabees established the semi-independence of a small Judean kingdom under the Hasmonean dynasty. With the Seleucid Empire collapsing, the Jews were truly independent from around 110 to 63 BC. In one of the Seleucid civil wars in 83 BC, they had invited the Armenians for support. Tigranes had used this opportunity to invade Syria and integrate a handful of cities like Damascus and Antioch into his kingdom. Antioch will be a major city in the future of our narrative. So just a few notes about it. It was located near the Mediterranean Sea on the river Orontes, not far from where Alexander the Great had defeated the Persians at the Battle of Issus. The city was squeezed between the Orontes and the slopes of a mountain, Mount Silpius. It had been founded in the year 300 by Seleucus I, who had established the Seleucid dynasty after Alexander's empire fell apart. The Seleucids used this as their capital, and it quickly became a large and rich and metropolitan place. Anyway, with the Armenians defeated, Pompey entered Antioch and wintered his army there, between 64 and 63. In 63, Pompey set out to clean up the area. The collapse of the Seleucids had led to independent warlords and brigands making a mess of the country. In short order, Pompey worked his magic and his army swept things up. Next, they marched to Damascus and put it under Roman control. Syria was now Roman territory. You may have noticed earlier that I said the Jews were independent from 110 to 63 BC. Well, we've reached 63 BC now. Continuing south from Syria, Pompey inserted himself into the politics of Judea. When Pompey arrived, the Hasmonean dynasty was at its greatest territorial height, extending north of the Judean heartland to Galilee, the area west of the Sea of Galilee and east of the Mediterranean coast, and extending south into Idumea, the region also called Edom, to the south of Judea. The kingdom was divided between supporters of two brothers, Hyrcanus and Aristobulus. Hyrcanus had inherited the kingdom from their mother, Salome, who herself had ruled for nine years. Hyrcanus had been the chief priest of the Jews for several years before he became king. Upon his ascension, though, his brother, Aristobulus, rebelled and seized the throne and the priesthood. Hearing of the huge Roman army led by Pompey at their doorstep, they both appealed to him, lavishing him with gifts to help reestablish or secure their rule over Judea. After making them wait for a while, Pompey seems to have grown to favor Hyrcanus. 
He was the weaker of the two and would make a better client of Rome. As Aristobulus realized Pompey wouldn't be favoring him, he gathered his army and began preparations to resist. The Romans quickly swatted away the Jewish army, and Aristobulus fled to a fortress. While he was holed up, his army was defeated again. Rather than suffering a siege of Jerusalem, he gave himself up and led Pompey to the city. But some of the more zealous people within Jerusalem had other ideas, and they fortified the temple to Yahweh and resisted. While the Romans were able to freely enter within the walls of the city of Jerusalem, the temple itself had large protective walls and it became a fortress or citadel for those who resisted. Pompey ordered a set of walls be built around the temple, surrounding it. It took three months, but with siege towers and rams brought from the city of Tyre, the Romans finally broke through the defenses, entered the temple, and slaughtered everyone they found there, more than 12,000. With the temple under Roman control, Pompey entered into the first chamber, and then into the Holy of Holies, the most sacred place in Judaism, where only a ritually clean high priest could enter, and only once each year. The Jewish historian Josephus says, But there was nothing that affected the nation so much in the calamities that they were then under, as that their holy place, which had been hitherto seen by none, should be laid open to strangers. For Pompey and those that were about him went into the temple itself, whither it was not lawful for any to enter but the high priest, and saw what was reposited therein. Yet did not he touch that money, nor anything else, but he commanded the ministers about the temple, the very next day after he had taken it, to cleanse it, and to perform their accustomed sacrifices. Pompey returned Hyrcanus as high priest, but stripped Judea of much of its territory, leaving it with control only of the Judean heartland. The previous territory would be ruled by the governor of Syria. Hyrcanus governed the small territory that remained with the help of an Idumean official, Antipater. Hyrcanus's brother, who had begun the resistance, was carried off in chains to Rome. It was time for Pompey to go to Rome too. If you've enjoyed our stop here in Judea, don't worry. We'll be stopping back here several times in the first century of our decades narrative. Pompey's return made the conservatives in the Senate nervous. Pompey's fame had never been higher. He had defeated Mithridates, tamed Armenia, ended the Seleucids, and incorporated Syria and Judea. In a single campaign, Pompey had doubled Rome's tax incomes. The East was rich. So when he returned, the Senate was nervous that he was so powerful and so popular that if he wanted to seize power for himself, he could. But Pompey was not Marius or Sulla, and he laid down his power. Politics in Rome had not stopped while Pompey was away conquering the East. In Pompey's absence, a senator named Catiline had begun to inspire a huge following among the people of Rome. Our only sources about him are from his enemies, so there's little we can say that isn't biased. Catiline is portrayed as immoral, perverted, and radical, espousing the land redistribution and debt forgiveness ideologies of the most radical populares. Despite his negative portrayal, it's clear through the sources that the people of Rome loved him. He had many enemies. Chief among them was the eloquent orator and senator, Cicero. When Catiline ran for the consulship in 63 BC, he had much support, but through massive bribery and backroom deals, the Senate was able to ensure he lost the vote. Now, Catiline and his supporters stepped outside the law to achieve their social reorganization. In secret, Catiline began to plan a conspiracy to overthrow the consuls, make himself dictator, and give power to the people. He began to gather armed supporters outside the city. 
His conspiracy was discovered by Cicero. When the Senate met again, Cicero flew into an impassioned speech condemning Catiline. Slowly, one by one, those sitting near Catiline stood up and moved away until he was sitting all alone. But Cicero had no evidence yet, and Catiline denied the charges. Soon, though, evidence trickled in. Catiline still denied the charges and even offered to place himself under house arrest in Cicero's home. But that night, Catiline fled from Rome. The Senate soon after received yet more evidence and was convinced to take action against the conspirators. Five of the conspirators, who were still in Rome, were seized by Cicero's men and strangled. Julius Caesar protested. These were Roman citizens who deserved a trial. Many, perhaps correctly, guessed that Caesar supported, in thought, if not in action, the Catilinarians. Catiline met up with his army, but was soon defeated by the legions. It was noted that the army of Catiline had been led under the eagle standard of Marius. The ideas of the Gracchi, Marius, and Cinna lived on. Can you feel that? We are nearing the end of the prologues. To get there, we need to give a proper introduction to Gaius Julius Caesar. I'll spare you the long, detailed biography of Caesar's pedigree, childhood, and his youthful adventures. But to catch us up, here are a few bullet points of his life so far. He was born in the year 100 BC into an old but impoverished patrician family, the Julii. He grew up in a wrong side of the tracks neighborhood in a tenement building owned by his family. So while he was of noble blood, he saw eye to eye with the common people. Despite these circumstances, his mother ensured he had a proper education. Caesar's aunt was a woman named Julia. She had been married to Marius, and their marriage had been mutually beneficial for both parties. Marius received the legitimacy of marrying a patrician, while Julia secured wealth and political access for her family. Their connections to Marius should have been a problem for Caesar and Julia when Sulla came to power. But Julia's noble reputation was so pure that she was never named on his prescription lists. Caesar wasn't so lucky. While Sulla had been away, and Cinna, the protege of Marius, ruled Rome, Caesar had married Cinna's daughter, Cornelia. When Sulla returned, he had demanded Caesar divorce her, but Caesar refused. Sulla nearly added the young Julius Caesar's name to his lists, but was persuaded by admirers of Caesar to refrain. So he survived the purges, but still thought it best to get out of Rome. He joined up with the governor of Asia in Anatolia and served with distinction in the army there. His time there won him honor as well as jeers. To successfully besiege a city, Caesar was sent to Bithynia to meet with King Nicomedes to ask for naval reinforcements. Caesar must have spent a little too long there because rumors began to spread of an affair between Caesar and the king. For the rest of his life, people would call him the Queen of Bithynia under their breath. When Sulla died, Caesar returned to Rome to begin working up the political ladder. After a detour back to Anatolia, where he was captured by pirates, befriended by them, released to freedom, only to return with an army and kill them. After that, Caesar was given his first real political post, and his first step on the ladder toward consul, with an assignment in Hispania. Before he left, though, both his aunt and his wife died. In the public funeral Caesar prepared for his aunt Julia, he displayed images of her late husband Marius. This was the first time images of him had been seen in a decade, and the old veterans of Marius and the common people glowed with nostalgia over the hope that Marius had given them. This was followed by a heartfelt funeral for his wife, and the people loved him for the somewhat undignified emotion he showed for her. He finally arrived in Hispania in 69 BC, and while there, he became known for his justice and fair ruling. 
That's not to say he didn't make some cash off the province. He also secured a network of clients and allies, which would serve him well over the next decades. After completing his term in Hispania, he made his way home through southern Gaul, the edge of the country he would soon grow very familiar with. When he returned to Rome, to the surprise of his allies and enemies, he got remarried to Pompeia, granddaughter of Sulla. This move widened his networks in Rome. Despite marrying into an optimate family, he never gave up on his populist policies. In his next post, Caesar was in Rome, and he used what money he had and borrowed heavily to build public works, throw lavish games, anything really that could gain him the favor of the people. But all this spending eventually turned his lenders against him. He would have to not only spend, but pay too. This is where his alliance with Crassus really paid off, literally, for him. The two may have been acquainted for a long time. It's likely that Caesar served in Crassus's army against Spartacus. But now, both of them needed each other. Crassus needed to borrow some of Caesar's easy charm, while Caesar needed Crassus's endless riches to continue buying allies and fueling his ambition. It was a match made in mammon. Eventually, though, Caesar needed to make some of his own money. He took the unusual step of running for Pontifex Maximus, which was usually merely a cush job for men about to retire. But Caesar used the job to make all kinds of money, and when he won the election, posts came with official housing, and he finally was able to move his family into the most well-to-do area of Rome. His role as Pontifex didn't stop him from running for other offices, though, and he became a praetor in 63 BC. In this role, he actively supported all that Pompey requested. He was in the ally-making business, and his two main targets were Pompey and Crassus, two of the most powerful men in the Republic. Before he could secure his position atop the Roman ladder, he was assigned as propraetor of Hispania Ulterior. Even with the money he had earned as Pontifex, and with the continued help from Crassus, Caesar was still in debt from the bribes and favors made to half the city. If his term of public office ever lapsed, he would be pounced on by his creditors. So, he slipped off to Hispania before his previous term ended. Back in Hispania now, Caesar again demonstrated his administrative talent, his justice, his charisma, but also his military acumen. He conquered two troublesome tribes and was beloved by his army. In 60 BC, they acclaimed him Imperator, an honorary title for commander or a conqueror. He returned to Rome and asked for a triumph. His enemies, though, sought to make things difficult for him, moving the consular election forward. Caesar wanted to run for consul that year, but to do that, he had to lay down command of his army. But that would mean he wouldn't be able to celebrate a triumph. Caesar asked to be allowed to run for consul while not actually present in the city. But his enemies, particularly the conservative Cato, denied the request. They thought they had him beat. Surely his ego would lead him to choose the triumph over the consular election. Instead, Caesar laid down his command and entered the city, ran for consul, and was elected for the year 59 BC. He had humbled himself to advance the bigger plans he had in store. As consul, Caesar linked up with two of the most powerful men in Rome, who, as we mentioned, were Crassus and Pompey. He had been allied and supported by Crassus for a decade now, and had repeatedly spoken up for Pompey in the Senate. Pompey and Crassus had been rivals since the days of Spartacus, but Caesar linked the three of them together into an informal alliance called the First Triumvirate. He convinced them that with their combined power and influence, they could effectively make the Republic run through them. To secure their connection, Caesar convinced Pompey to marry his daughter, Julia. The three triumvirs agreed to support each other in the Senate, and thus impose their will on Rome. Caesar put forward a bill to redistribute land to the poor, and Crassus and Pompey quickly voiced their support. 
The year before, Pompey had put forward a bill to give land to his veterans, but it had been shut down by the Optimates. Now, though, Pompey had the weight of Caesar and Crassus with him. To further secure support for the bill, Caesar filled the city with his soldiers, giving a not-so-subtle hint of what might happen to anyone speaking up against the bill. Caesar's co-consul, an old conservative, tried to resist the passing of the bill, but he was driven from the forum by armed supporters of Caesar. For the rest of the consulship, his co-consul mostly hid in his home, giving Caesar free reign to rule as he wished. As his consulship came to an end, with the help of Pompey, Caesar secured a governorship of Cisalpine and Transalpine Gaul, northern Italy and southern France. He escaped prosecution in Rome and made it to his province. There, he had four legions at his disposal. The lands to the north of the Roman territory, in what they called Gaul, and what we called France, were inhabited by various Celtic tribes. Their level of assimilation to Roman and Greek culture generally decreased the farther one traveled from the Mediterranean. As Caesar took command of southern Gaul, he discovered there was a great deal of turmoil in peripheral tribes. A large battle had recently taken place. One side had invited a powerful Germanic tribe to help, and their victory and the arrival of the Germans had caused waves of chaos that flowed across Gaul and splashed up on Caesar's feet near the Mediterranean. So began Caesar's epic conquest, which would see Rome extend her rule over all of Gaul, even to the English Channel, engaging in a long series of wars which, if they occurred today, would probably be called a genocide. The old blood memory of the Gallic sack of Rome 340 years earlier was still there for the Romans, and the Celts were a formidable enemy. Caesar and his army were nearly destroyed more than once. Caesar, though, was able to exploit the divisions between the tribes for his advantage. The greatest threat came near the end of the wars, when a leader of the Gauls named Vercingetorix attempted to unite all of Gaul under his banner. In the end, this attempt failed, and in the Battle of Elysia, the engineering and discipline of Caesar's army led him to victory and to the surrender of Vercingetorix. Eight years after Caesar had left the capital, Rome now ruled Gaul. Caesar should have returned to Rome a hero, but his work at building the Triumvirate had fallen apart while he was away. The other members of the Triumvirate had initially supported Caesar's conquests from Rome. In 55 BC, Crassus and Pompey had served as consuls together and they secured the lucrative posts of Syria and Hispania for themselves. Crassus took command in Syria. For years, he had been jealous of Pompey's conquests. His only real military success had been defeating the Spartacus-led uprisings 15 years earlier. And now, reports were coming in of Caesar's conquests of Gaul. As governor of Syria, Crassus was eager to prove himself and match the reputation of his co-triumvirs. In 53 BC, he gathered a large army in Syria and prepared to conquer the Parthians. The new king of Armenia offered him support and recommended invading through safe territory in Armenia. But Crassus chose instead to approach more directly through the desert. The local guide Crassus relied on was secretly employed by the Parthians, though, and chose rough and desolate paths. Crassus's tired and thirsty army was ambushed by a much smaller Parthian force but it was only made up of cavalry, mostly horse archers, but also some heavy cataphracts. The Romans were peppered with arrows relentlessly for a day, hiding behind their shields. Despite many casualties, the Romans were able to retreat from the battle. Near mutiny now, Crassus's soldiers demanded he meet with the Parthians. Crassus went out to meet with them, but something spooked the Parthians, and a battle broke out between the two parties. Crassus and his officers were killed, and, in an extreme humiliation for the army, the legionary standards were captured by the Parthians. With Caesar in Gaul and Crassus in Syria, Pompey had been the lone triumvir in Rome. 
Julia, who was Caesar's daughter and Pompey's wife, died that year in childbirth. The ties that bound the triumvirate together were falling apart. The three powerful men had been balanced against each other, but with Crassus gone, Pompey became jealous and suspicious of Caesar's growing power. The conservatives in the Senate also became increasingly concerned with Caesar's power and love by the people. More and more, they turned to Pompey as a check on Caesar. Their rationale was that Pompey had had immense power after his conquest in the East, but he had not abused that power by making himself dictator. He had already passed the test. It didn't look like Caesar would. And so with the populares and those sympathizing with them increasingly turning to Caesar, Pompey associated more and more with the Optimates. In 51, one of the consuls proposed recalling Caesar from Gaul and replacing him with another general. When Caesar refused to lay down his command, it seemed likely that Cato and the other conservatives would send Pompey to Gaul to forcibly remove Caesar. While Pompey demurred, his enmity with Caesar grew. Both sides saw a civil war coming. The faction gathering around Pompey tried repeatedly to get Caesar to disarm and come back to Rome without an army. Caesar knew he had too many enemies for that to happen without him ending up prosecuted in chains or dead. The Senate could feel a war coming too. Under the guidance of the moderating voice of Cicero, they attempted to rule that both sides would disarm and de-escalate. The voting was heavily in favor of this, but the conservative consul disbanded the meeting before the vote could be finalized. Next, Caesar himself agreed to disarm if it was a mutual disarmament, but again the hardliners insisted that Caesar would have to be the one to disarm alone. Caesar would not do that unilaterally. Things slid further toward war when, in January of 49, the tribunes supportive of Caesar were driven from the city. Without their check, the hardliners were able to declare Caesar an enemy of the state. Now Caesar was really in a bind. If he kept his army, he would be proving the Senate right and openly defying the state. If he disarmed, he would be arrested. Caesar needed to be able to return home and secure another consulship, but he knew his enemies would cheat him of any chance at a fair election. If you can call any election fair with the level of bribery and corruption that existed at this time in the Republic. With all this in mind, his decision was made. In January of 49 BC, Caesar led a single legion through Cisalpine Gaul and across the Rubicon. This river formed the boundary with Italy, where he had no authority to lead his soldiers. According to Plutarch and Suetonius, after he crossed the Rubicon, he said, The die is cast. He was now in open defiance, open rebellion of the Senate and Roman law. He advanced towards Rome. In the city, the panicking Senate asked Pompey to gather more troops. They had heard reports that Caesar's army was tired and likely to disband now that they were back in Italy. But clearly now, that wasn't true. Caesar was advancing quickly, and each city he passed through fell into his camp, whether out of preference for him or fear. As Caesar approached, Pompey retreated to Campania to get more time to gather an army. He demanded the other senators come with him, and he seized the public treasury and brought it with him. You have to have money if you're going to save the Republic. Caesar stopped with his army just outside of Rome, and sent messengers in proclaiming that he was the one fighting in defense of the Republic. He now controlled Etruria, Umbria, and the north of Italy. Now another of Caesar's legions, which had waited in Gaul, came south and joined him. Pompey knew his recruits were no match for Caesar's veterans, so he and his entourage abandoned Campania and went further south down the Italian peninsula. One supporter of Pompey stood and resisted, though. When the siege began, this supporter had a larger force than Caesar. 
But Caesar's army continued to grow. Soon, siege weapons appeared outside the town. The general tried to sneak out of the city, but his soldiers caught him and brought him to Caesar. Caesar showed him mercy and let him go, but his soldiers were made to swear an oath of loyalty to Caesar. His army grew larger still. Pompey saw things were going poorly for him and the Senate, so they all packed up again and this time fled across the Adriatic to Greece. There they would have all the time and resources they would need to build a resistance to Caesar. Pompey set up camp in Macedonia and built a training area. He had five legions already. On top of that, he added four more legions gathered from the east. He ordered a large navy be built, which would secure resources and also stop Caesar from following him across the sea. The issue was that they had abandoned Rome to him without putting up a fight. Unable to catch up with Pompey before he left Italy, Caesar turned and finally entered Rome. Before he could rest though, word came that Pompey's generals in Hispania were defeating Caesar's allies there. Caesar left Rome in the hands of his lieutenant, Mark Antony. With incredible speed, Caesar left Rome in June of 49 BC and made it to Hispania in only 27 days. He quickly defeated the allies of Pompey there. At the same time though, allies of Caesar were defeated in their efforts at securing Sicily and Africa. Caesar returned back to Rome in December, and he was declared as dictator, with Mark Antony as his second in command. His position would not be secure until he dealt with Pompey, though. In April of 48 BC, Caesar led his legions to Brundisium, the crossing point across the Adriatic to Greece. Although Pompey's allies should have had control of the sea, Caesar managed to slip seven legions across, with only the tail end of the transportations being stopped but this contained only some supplies and some food. Caesar captured Apollonia and used it as a base. In April, Caesar brought his army to face Pompey, who had his army stationed at Dyrrhachium in modern Albania. Pompey's army had set up defenses and denied Caesar's attempts at starting a battle. They knew Caesar's troops were hungry. So a siege set in. Caesar's army built a circumvallation, walls outside of Pompey's walls, and tried to seal off the army. But the siege proved difficult, as Pompey could easily resupply by sea. Caesar's army was able to divert the streams Pompey's army was relying on, though, and without fresh water, disease began to spread in the camp. For more than three months, the siege was a stalemate. Skirmishing periodically broke out between the two sets of walls, but neither side could gain an advantage. Finally, though, a Gallic contingent defected from Caesar to Pompey and passed along information on a weak spot in Caesar's walls. An assault was ordered, and Pompey's soldiers managed to break through. Only the intervention of Mark Antony stopped Pompey's army from overrunning Caesar's forces right there. Pompey set up a fortified camp outside the walls and began moving his army out of the area they had been sealed in for months. Caesar made a costly mistake here and attacked Pompey's camp. His army became confused and coordinated poorly. Pompey's army killed many of them and pushed them away easily. His army was advancing dangerously fast on the remainder of Caesar's forces when Pompey called off the advance. Caesar considered this a huge mistake, saying, Pompey's forces would have won today if only they were commanded by a winner. Caesar's army slipped away back to Apollonia. Pompey and his retinue were ecstatic. Caesar's rise had felt inevitable and unstoppable, but now they had weathered the blow and gotten the better of him. Pompey's supporters eagerly encouraged him to seek Caesar out, defeat him in battle, and end him for good. The two sides met again a few months later in the plain of Pharsalus. 
There, Caesar's soldiers successfully inflicted heavy casualties on Pompey's cavalry, using their javelins as spears instead of throwing them. Then, as the opposing infantry closed ranks, Caesar revealed he had been hiding a squadron of infantry behind his own cavalry. With his cavalry having fled, Pompey's left wing was exposed, and Caesar's hidden veterans were able to advance and flank them. The battle turned into a rout. At least six times as many of Pompey's soldiers were killed. Caesar and his biographies claimed the losses were less than 250 on his side compared to 60,000 on the other. Pompey fled with a few supporters. The Senate, mostly exiled in Dyrrhachium still, first attempted to give command to Cicero to continue the fight, but he refused. Others, including a man named Marcus Junius Brutus, sought Caesar's pardon and went over to his camp. Caesar graciously welcomed them. Before he could rest, though, he had to capture Pompey. Pompey had been defeated and separated from the Senate, but he still had a vast network of clients in the east he could draw from. Pompey first fled to the island of Lesvos, and then to Cilicia. Next, his war council agreed that seeking refuge in Ptolemaic Egypt was their best remaining option. Arriving on the coast of Egypt, a welcoming boat came out to meet Pompey. They invited him on board, and before anyone could stop them, they slew Pompey there, in full view of his family and supporters. Gnaeus Pompeius Magnus, the conqueror of the East, was dead. Arriving just three days later, Caesar is said to have wept upon seeing Pompey's head, which had been severed to present to Caesar in expectation of his coming. The assassins had killed Pompey to gain support from Caesar, who they could see was ascendant. Egypt at this time was still nominally independent. It was ruled by the Macedonian descendants of Ptolemy I, the general of Alexander the Great. Recently, though, Egypt had been rocked by a series of civil wars, some at the behest of Rome. When Caesar arrived, there was currently one going on between Ptolemy XIII and his sister Cleopatra. He demanded a huge payment from the Egyptians and declared that he would arbitrate between the two siblings. Supporters of Ptolemy XIII brought in an army and attacked Caesar's residence. Held up in his quarters, awaiting a relief army, Caesar and Cleopatra began an affair. When Caesar's army arrived, they easily beat the Egyptians. Ptolemy fled, but died when his boat capsized in the Nile. The civil war now decided, Caesar spent three months cruising the Nile with Cleopatra. A break from the fighting at last. News came then that pulled Caesar back from his holiday. Pharnaces, the son of Mithridates and Pontus, had begun a reconquest of his father's old territory. Caesar gathered up his army, said goodbye to the now visibly pregnant Cleopatra, and marched up the eastern Mediterranean coast toward Pharnaces. Arriving to face the Pontic army, Caesar's forces were initially thrown into confusion, but were able to regather and destroy their enemy. Pharnaces was soon assassinated. Caesar's swift victory led him to say, Vini, vidi, vici. I came, I saw, I conquered. Caesar headed back to Rome, where Antony had been unsuccessfully keeping the peace. Caesar had been appointed dictator for a second year, soon after his victory at Pharsalus, but now he gave that up to become consul again, the other consul being a man named Lepidus. From here Caesar went on a series of campaigns, in Africa and in Hispania, to eliminate the remnants of Pompey's supporters. After clearing Africa, he returned to Rome. He celebrated four triumphs while there, over Gaul, Egypt, Asia, and Africa. Impressive, no doubt, 
but many grew uncomfortable as the triumph switched from celebrating the conquest of barbarians to the slaughter of fellow Romans. Still, Caesar's dictatorship seemed to light. Yes, he confiscated the property of Pompey and sold it at market price, but he refrained from the prescriptions that the old among them would have remembered from Marius and Sulla's days. Caesar also threw massive games and held huge banquets. With the money he had taken from Egypt and from Pompey, he lavished his veteran soldiers with a huge sum of money. The sons of Pompey still held out in Hispania, however. Caesar had to invest a good deal of time there, clearing them out. We don't have a lot of detail about the war there. It seems Caesar himself didn't write this section of his biographies, instead employing a ghostwriter who, apart from providing contradictory information, fell far short of Caesar's command of Latin writing. A few details are clear, though. While in Hispania, Caesar was bestowed with a recurring dictatorship for ten consecutive years. It was also at this time that he sent word to his great-nephew, Gaius Octavius, to come and join him in his campaigns there. The young man, Caesar's niece's son, began the journey there, but due to health issues, he didn't make it to Caesar before the war had ended. That end came in March of 45 BC, when Caesar defeated the elder son of Pompey at the Battle of Munda. No more armies were left in opposition. The civil war was over. Caesar stood alone atop the Roman world. Caesar slowly returned to Rome and spent much of his time speaking with and vetting his great-nephew. When he reached the city, another triumph was held for his victories in Hispania. This one too was received as distasteful. Again, it celebrated a victory over Romans. Afterwards, Caesar began to truly rule and administer the state as a dictator, and he pursued aggressive policies. First, he ordered a census. Rome had a system of welfare called the Cura Annonae, or the Grain Dole, where people below a certain level of income were eligible to buy up to around 65 pounds of grain a month at a much reduced price. Caesar's census helped to reassess who qualified and allowed a large savings on the dole. Next, and maybe most impactful for us today, Caesar reformed the calendar. The old Roman calendar was a confusing mess. It only had 10 months and was based on lunar months. Its months were constantly drifting between seasons, which made calculating dates or knowing when to plant a crop difficult. Julius Caesar reformed the calendar more in line with the solar calendar used by the Egyptians. This one had 12 months and 365 and a quarter days, with a leap year added every fourth year to the end of February. It was called the Julian calendar, and it should sound pretty familiar. This system was used for more than 1,500 years before being slightly tweaked to our current Gregorian calendar. A few other achievements as dictator. He ordered the rebuilding of Carthage and Corinth, both destroyed 80 years earlier. He reverted the tax code to allow taxes to be collected by the locals once again, rather than requiring Roman middlemen, who usually exploited the provinces. He rebuilt the depleted Senate, increasing its numbers to 900 members, which diluted the prestige of the office and filled its ranks with supporters of Caesar. Finally, he began to draw plans for an invasion of Parthia. He hadn't forgotten how Crassus had met his end. In February of 44 BC, the subservient Senate voted for Caesar to become dictator in perpetuity. While all of this was happening, several senators who could see the Republic falling apart met and hashed out a plot. The chief conspirators were Cassius Longinus and Marcus Brutus, who met in late February and agreed that something must be done. Brutus had been a protege of Caesar in his youth, but had fallen out with him since Caesar left for Gaul. 
only to come back with the defeat of Pompey. Now, Brutus was called upon to live up to his family name. If you remember way, way back to the final king of Rome, a Lucius Junius Brutus was one of the key senators who had ousted the tyrannical king, Tarquinius. Now, there were increasing signs that Caesar would soon be declaring himself king. He had been awarded the right to wear his triumphal procession robes in the Senate, which were royal purple. And when he was being lauded with titles in the Senate, he had remained seated rather than standing as an equal. In the city, a crown kept being placed on a statue of Caesar in the night. Caesar, of course, denied any accusation that he was planning to become king. But the conspirators saw through the charade. To save the republic from monarchy, Caesar must be killed. The conspirators began to gather supporters, and at least 60 joined the conspiracy. They almost attempted to add Mark Antony to their number, but in the end, they thought better of it and left him in the dark. Antony was a fiercely loyal friend of Caesar to the end. The questions of when and where were debated by the conspirators, but their choice was nearly made for them. The only place Caesar wasn't protected by his guards was at the Senate meetings, and Caesar was leaving for his war with Parthia on the 18th of March. The last Senate meeting where he would appear was three days earlier, on the 15th, the Ides of March. If they weren't able to stop Caesar before this campaign, it might be years before they had another chance. It would have to be on the Ides. As the date approached, both Plutarch and Suetonius suggest Caesar wasn't totally unaware of a plot against his life. According to them, a seer had warned him his life was in danger. On the Ides of March, the Senate met at the Senate House of Pompey rather than the Forum. The Forum was being rebuilt by Caesar after it had been damaged in the civil wars. That morning, Caesar's wife had also warned him not to go that day. Perhaps because of the seer's prediction, or perhaps a faint whisper of the plot had reached her ear. Caesar initially agreed not to go, but hearing of it, one of the conspirators went to his house to convince him to attend the meeting. He persuaded him by appealing that the Senate had met for him and it would be in bad taste not to meet with them before leaving on campaign. That's something only a king would do. Eventually, Caesar gave in and went to the Senate. Soon after Caesar entered, one of the conspirators approached with a document asking Caesar to recall his exiled brother. The other conspirators gathered around to voice support. Caesar tried to wave them off, but first, one of them grabbed his shoulder and pulled back his toga. Caesar yelled, Why this violence? And then a conspirator named Casca produced a dagger and swiped at Caesar's throat. Caesar caught his arm, though, and pulled it away, saying, Casca, you villain, what are you doing? Casca now yelled, Help me, brothers! And the other conspirators pulled out their daggers and stabbed Caesar repeatedly. He received at least 23 stab wounds. The dictator's final words are debated. In the confused mob around him, he likely didn't pick out individuals. As time passed, though, legend began to form that seeing Brutus and the gang, he said, You too, child? Or in Shakespeare's famous line, Et tu, Brute. Still later, it came to be believed that Brutus had yelled out, Six Semper Tyrannus, always such with tyrants. Julius Caesar the last of the triumvirate, lay dead. The conspirators fled from the building, and now calling themselves the Liberators, declared in the streets that they had saved Rome from tyranny and monarchy. Instead of cheering, they were met with silence and a locking of doors. The people knew that the brief interlude of peace would soon be over. They were in fact correct, and civil war would rack the Roman world for another 13 years. 
The day after the assassination, a large crowd gathered, and the liberators attempted to buy it off, with little success. Brutus arrived and delivered a speech he had prepared about preserving the Republic and preserving their liberties. But the people weren't fooled. They remembered that it was Caesar who had made reforms in their favor, and it was the Senate who had tried for decades to stop them. On the 17th, Mark Antony, acting as tribune, convened the Senate and accepted Cicero's proposal for a general amnesty. Next, he agreed with Cicero that Brutus and Cassius, the chief conspirators, should receive governorships, which would give them safety and power and get them out of the capital. Under the steady hand of Antony, the risk of civil war seemed to be fading. Antony saw himself in good position to be the chief benefactor after Caesar's death. He had been Caesar's right-hand man for years and had skillfully led soldiers beside Caesar. All expected him to be the heir named in Caesar's will. On the 19th, that will was secured from the keeping of the Vestal Virgins. When it was read, to Antony and nearly everyone's shock, Caesar had named his great-nephew Gaius Octavius his heir and adopted him as son. Word of the contents of his will spread quickly throughout the city. The next day was the funeral of Caesar. A huge crowd including many of his veteran soldiers gathered to pay him honor. Antony began his oration softly and with grief, but it slowly built as his feeling came forward into an angry but eloquent condemnation of the conspirators. The crowd had been restrained, but soon it fell into wailing. As Caesar's body was placed on the bier, men grabbed torches from the funeral pyre and sought to burn the houses of the conspirators. Guards stopped them, but the incensed mob went on a chaotic riot throughout the city. After some time, Antony used his soldiers to end the riots. Antony now used documents which he supposedly found in Caesar's residence to bequeath to himself some of Caesar's fortune. He now went back on his earlier decision and removed Brutus from the governorship and pushed through the assembly a bill to give himself that province. The Senate became alarmed with Antony's spreading power, and to check its growth, they invited in Caesar's adopted son, Gaius Octavius. Octavian was only 18 years old at the time. His father had served as governor of Macedonia, and while there, the boy had been trained in Greek literature and philosophy. Antony and Octavian were opposites, though. While Antony excelled at leading soldiers, Octavian excelled at statesmanship. Octavian had gone with Caesar to Hispania the previous year and done well, but his physical frailty limited his military acumen. He was thin and pale and had frequent incapacitating bouts of illness. Late in March, word reached Octavian, stationed in Illyria, of the death and will of his great-uncle. He took the name of his adopted father and became Gaius Julius Caesar Octavian. The news filled his heart with revenge, and quickly he rode to the coast and made for Brundisium and then to Rome. Reaching the city, he met with Antony and found him busy preparing to lead an army against Brutus. The liberators, despite the decrees of Antony, had not laid down their governorships. Although he agreed that the so-called liberators had to be destroyed, Antony's actions since the death of his great-uncle concerned Octavian. Antony had not fulfilled Caesar's will and was continuing to twist it in his favor. Finding Antony had not paid Caesar's soldiers, Octavian used his own money to pay them what they deserved. This, along with him being named as Caesar's heir, won most of them over to his side. Suddenly, the young man had an army. But Antony did not appreciate being policed by this boy, as he called him. In revenge, Antony accused Octavian of plotting against him. 
Octavian, of course, denied it, and the natural rift between the expectant inheritor and the actual inheritor grew. Cicero now asserted himself into the rift, hoping to spin the one against the other. Cicero was never fond of Antony, perhaps because of his gallivanting and party boy morals. Octavian, with Cicero's rhetorical support, was able to convince the Senate to lead an army against Antony. The Senate, who had called on Octavian for this very purpose, was easily persuaded, and in 43 BC, Octavian marched with two consuls to Cisalpine Gaul, where Antony was stationed. The army of the Senate defeated Antony, but, conveniently for Octavian, both of the consuls died in the fighting. Antony escaped, but back in Rome, Cicero and the Senate now declared him an enemy of the state. Octavian now had full control of the Senate's armies, and with the consular seats opened, he moved rapidly to fill the seat with himself and a cousin of his. The Senate, who had only been using Octavian to deal with Antony, now found itself with a new enemy in the young man. As consul, Octavian revoked the Senate's condemnation of Antony. He had use for Caesar's general still. He would need his military command in defeating the liberators, and the veterans of Caesar's army still regarded Antony highly. Octavian, with the help of an ally of Caesar, named Marcus Lepidus, went out to meet with Antony. At this meeting, Octavian and Antony reconciled, and the three men agreed on a power-sharing agreement. To seal the new partnership, Octavian agreed to marry Antony's stepdaughter, Clodia. With their combined influence, they were able to force a ratification of their powers as triumvirs for a five-year term. Antony provided military experience, Octavian provided an ability to administer, and Lepidus added a bit of maturity to balance the youthfulness of the other two. Now in total control of Rome, the triumvirs unleashed a reign of terror on Rome that would have made Marius or Sulla blush. Their prescriptions went far beyond the previous ones. The lists named 300 senators and 2,000 businessmen. Revenge and money were their goals. Anyone connected to the conspirators in any way was included. They were killed and their property seized by the tremors. High on the list was Cicero's name. Antony had included him, and while Octavian had protested initially, he had given in. Octavian remembered an insult hidden behind a pun that Cicero had spoken against him. The old master of oratory tried to flee at first, leaving Rome and making it to his country villa. But his pursuers were closing in, and he gave up the fight. When his executors arrived, Cicero only offered his neck for a swifter death. He had rode the waves of civil war for twenty years, but he could not stay afloat forever. With the city blood-soaked and purged from their enemies, in 42 BC the triumvirs led their army out against the liberators. Brutus and Cassius had made it to Thrace, the region northeast of Macedonia, and set up base. They had spent the last couple years gathering an army, but to do so, they had to use extremely harsh extractions on the local people of the east. Macedon, Greece, Anatolia, Syria, and Judea, taxing them well beyond the norm. The army of the triumvirs caught the liberators and met them in battle outside the city of Philippi in northern Greece. Antony controlled one wing, while Octavian controlled the other. In the battle, Antony got the better of Cassius, but Brutus was able to defeat Octavian's army and capture three of his legionary standards. Octavian, though, had escaped. The greed of Brutus's troops kept them looting the camp rather than pursuing and finishing off Octavian's army. Despite Brutus's victory, dust had obscured the battlefield, and Cassius was unable to see that while he had been defeated, his ally had decisively won. 
Thinking his cause totally lost, Cassius committed suicide. Brutus combined his army with the remainder of Cassius's, and in a second battle 20 days later, Brutus was defeated. He retreated into the hilly forest nearby with what forces he had remaining. Seeing his cause was hopeless, he too committed suicide. The liberators had met their end. In victory, the triumvirs divided the empire between themselves. Lepidus got Africa, Octavian got the west, Hispania and Italy, and Antony got the best portion, the east. Although destroying the liberators was the triumvirate's first priority, it wasn't the only threat to their rule. Sextus Pompey, the younger son of Pompey the Great, was still alive. While he had remained quiet for a few years, when he found his name listed on the prescriptions, he began gathering support in consolidating the remnants of the Optimate faction around himself. From a base in Sicily, Sextus had captured the island and cut off the wealth that normally flowed from Sicily to Rome. This caused food shortages in the capital, and the triumvirate had been forced to temporarily recognize Sextus's control over Sicily. Once the liberators were dealt with, though, in 42 BC, open war began. Neither side made much progress for the first two years, although an admiral serving Sextus was able to capture the island of Sardinia in 40 BC. The next year, the triumvirs signed a truce, as Antony was busy bringing all of his armies to Syria for a war against Parthia. Octavian resumed hostilities, though, breaking the truce, and even was able to convince Sextus's general to hand back Sardinia. In 37 BC, Octavian's navy was soundly beaten at the Battle of Messina, and he had turned to his friends Marcus Agrippa and Titus Taurus to lead the war. The next year, these two generals, with support given from Lepidus in Africa, were able to defeat Sextus at sea and on land, and in 35 he was captured and executed. We have to back up a few years now. As I mentioned, Antony now controlled the east, Greece, Anatolia, Syria, and Judea. This was the richest portion of the Roman Empire, and Antony planned to use and enjoy that wealth for himself. He had an enormous advantage over the other triumvirs, and his generals still held on to control of Gaul, providing easy access to Italy if a check was needed on Octavian. Although he had the richest provinces, he found them suffering after much of their wealth had been harshly sucked away by Brutus and Cassius. Antony gained favor in the east by being light with his taxation in the worst-hit areas, and he gained admiration by displaying respect to the great cultural centers of the east. Well, gaining favor was part of his motive. The other side of things was that Antony really liked to have a good time, and he engaged in every sensuality offered to him. While he was in Tarsus, in the Anatolian region of Cilicia, he sent word to Alexandria, requesting Cleopatra come to him to answer accusations that she had aided the liberators. She arrived in an elaborate procession, upon a boat with gilded stern, silver oars, and purple sails. She was dressed as the goddess Venus. Antony was instantly seduced. She invited him to Alexandria. Antony followed. Cleopatra was trying to secure the position of her kingdom, knowing that domination by Rome was only a matter of time unless she had the favor of Rome's ruler. She had failed at marrying Caesar, but she had more success in bending Antony. As Antony frolicked in the cultured city, he began to dream of ruling from the beautiful and fascinating east rather than the boring and self-restrained Rome. Back in the boring city, Fulvia, Antony's wife, and Lucius, Antony's brother, plotted to overthrow Octavian. Things in the city weren't going Octavian's way. 
The uncertainty brought about by the revolving door of leadership the past few years piled on top of pent-up anger at the purges and the hunger brought by Sextus Pompey's blockades of grain from Sicily made the city a miserable place for the young triumvir. Fulvia and Lucius used this pent-up frustration and raised an army and called on Italy to revolt. Octavian, with the help of his general Agrippa, cornered Lucius and Fulvia in the city of Perusia and starved them out. Fulvia died of illness at this time, her plans crushed, and her husband off with a foreign queen. Octavian showed mercy to Lucius to try to ease the reaction of Antony, but without success. Relations between the two were rapidly deteriorating. Antony rushed toward Italy with his army. He besieged Octavian's army at Brundisium, but the soldiers refused to fight each other and demanded the two come to an agreement. The two met and renewed the triumvirate in 40 BC. Octavian would now receive Gaul and Illyria, adding them to Italy and Hispania, which he controlled. Antony was confirmed as master of the east, and they agreed that he should lead a campaign against Parthia in revenge for Crassus's defeat and to fulfill the plans of Caesar. The Parthians had not waited for this agreement to attack the Romans. In 41, they had made large raids into Anatolia and Syria without resistance. First, Antony had been busy enjoying Egypt, and then he had had to return to Italy. Now, it was time for the triumvirate to respond. As I mentioned earlier, they briefly made peace with Sextus Pompey, and Antony began to gather his armies. While Antony was in Italy, his general, Ventidius, had major successes at turning back the Parthian raids and pushing them back to the Euphrates River. Internal politics and the threat of Sextus Pompey delayed the invasion until 36 BC. He brought his army into Armenia, picking up support there and from other allies along the way, and moved quickly toward the Parthian capital. But he had arrived outside the city too soon. His siege equipment was far behind. He waited, but discovered that they had been destroyed. The Parthian horse archers attacked with a relentless barrage of arrows. Antony's forces never broke, but they had to slowly retreat, taking casualties along the way, all the way back to central Anatolia. The long-awaited invasion had been a disaster. Back in the west, Octavian had just defeated Sextus Pompey and driven him out of Sicily. Well, it was mostly the work of Octavian's general Agrippa, and aid from Lepidus had certainly helped, but Octavian was the one who received the honors. Now, though, the third triumvir, Lepidus, sought to use the momentum of the victory to improve his position. As the forgotten member of the triumvirate, he always received only scraps from the other two. While in Sicily, he tried to get Octavian's soldiers to join him. The ploy didn't work, and Octavian was able to turn it around on him, and nearly alone, he walked into Lepidus's camp and convicted Lepidus's soldiers to follow him instead. This momentary betrayal by the elder triumvir led Octavian to strip him of his status as triumvir. He wasn't killed though, neither was his property seized. Instead, he was allowed to keep his role as Pontifex Maximus, and for another two decades, he could be found still roaming the streets of the Eternal City. Just two triumvirs were left, and as the first triumvirate found when Crassus had died, a two-person triumvirate was unbalanced. It needed three legs to stand. Octavian and Antony increasingly saw each other as enemies. Their distrust had started with the fallout of Caesar's death, but had been held together by mutual interests. Octavian's battles against Antony's wife Fulvia and brother Lucius had brought their conflict back to the surface. War between them was only stopped by the soldiers under them. 
As a peace offering, Antony had agreed to marry Octavian's sister, Octavia. For a brief period, Antony had honored this marriage to a good woman, but before long, the pleasures of the East beckoned again. When he had met Cleopatra, he had fallen for her and abandoned Octavia. She had returned to Rome in quiet rejection, a persistent reminder to Octavian that Antony had to be stopped. Antony, in 32 BC, officially married Cleopatra and had given rule of the province of Cyrene in modern Libya and Crete to her and the son she had borne to Julius Caesar, Caesarian. To his twins that Cleopatra bore him, Antony gave the entire east of the empire as an inheritance. This marriage to a foreign queen and offering the empire as an inheritance to his children was scandalous to the elites in Rome. Worse, after his disastrous campaign in Parthia, he had thrown himself a triumph, not in Rome, but in Alexandria. Sacrilege. It seemed more and more that Antony was ready to split the Republic, if you could still call it that, in two. Octavian now showed his skills as a propagandist and carefully pushed the Senate and the public's opinion against Antony. He couldn't rest while Caesarion, Caesar's illegitimate son by Cleopatra, threatened his status as heir to Caesar. Antony still had friends, veterans, and allies in the city though, so Octavian had to move carefully. Antony's relationship with Cleopatra and his triumph in Alexandria made the job easier for Octavian. He chose an angle that avoided his supporters' enmity. A paraphrase of his argument might have been, Antony isn't a bad man, he's only been taken in by the scheming and seductive Cleopatra. In front of the Senate, Octavian claimed to have received the will of Antony from the Vestal Virgins. Its contents confirmed the inheritance of the East to his and Cleopatra's children and directed his body to be buried beside the queen in Alexandria. The Senate was convinced Cleopatra was using Antony to absorb the empire under her rule. In 32 BC, Octavian and the Senate declared war, not on Antony, but on Cleopatra. The huge Roman Republic, in the words of its leaders, would now be fighting for independence against the small kingdom of Egypt. The decision was far from unanimous though, 40% of the Senate left to join with Antony. Antony had not grown too soft under the Egyptian sun to put up a fight. He and Cleopatra gathered warships and a huge army drawn from the eastern provinces, many perhaps buying the propaganda that they were aiding in a war of independence from Rome. Octavian too gathered an enormous army and navy. Both sides moved their forces to Greece. At sea, Octavian's navy, under the command of Agrippa, had the advantage. While their ships were smaller, they had more of them, and more experience after the years of fighting Sextus Pompey's navy around Sicily. Agrippa moved the navy to blockade Antony from receiving supplies. Both sides avoided conflict, looking for an advantage and engaging in a war of attrition. The delay was advantageous to Octavian as morale sank on Antony's side, and senators and foreign clients began to desert his cause. The situation grew worse when Agrippa successfully captured a Greek city nearby that had been loyal to Antony. Several skirmishes began on land, and Antony's units generally got the better of their enemy. But at sea, Antony's navy was outmatched and hemmed in. In September of 31 BC, they had gathered their ships off the western coast of Greece at the Gulf of Actium hoping to break Octavian's defenses. What Antony didn't know is that the night before the battle, one of his generals had defected to Octavian, delivering Antony's plan for the battle. 
In the Battle of Actium, the more numerous small ships of Octavian were able to outmaneuver the hulking Quinquireme five-storied ships of Antony. As Cleopatra watched from her barge nearby, she would have seen Antony's navy encircled and boarded or burned or sunk one by one. Seeing his defeat, he signaled to Cleopatra, and they carried out their arranged escape plan. His flagship was unable to escape, but he slipped out of the battle in a small rowboat and made it to Cleopatra's barge. A favorable wind picked up, and before they could be stopped, they were on their way back to Egypt. The queen's barge held the huge treasury of Egypt, and while this survived, though the battle was lost, the fight could continue. But with his head in his hands, Antony must have known this was the end. The Battle of Actium was the decisive victory for Octavian, and had huge consequences for world history. You only need to imagine the what-ifs if Antony had won or the battle had been a draw. The division of Rome in the 30s BC would have been very possible. Octavian didn't immediately rush after Antony. He soon had to return to Italy to help put down a mutiny for some of his soldiers, who demanded pay. He was low on cash, though, and could only offer them a promise of payment. If he could capture the wealth of Egypt, though, his soldiers would receive their due and more. When he had arrived in Italy, the Senate, instead of waiting for his return to Rome, went out to meet him at the port of Brundisium. Although Antony still survived, after Actium, they all knew who the ruler of Rome would be. Octavian went to Greece and Anatolia for a time before pursuing Antony. While on the island of Samos, Octavian received a message from Cleopatra, along with a golden crown. She asked for kind treatment and offered to abdicate in favor of her sons. Octavian sent no reply. Next, he was visited by Antony's son with a gift of gold, asking only that Antony be allowed to retire as a private citizen to Athens. Octavian sent no reply. Antony was too dangerous to leave alive. But Cleopatra seemed to think that there was a future where she could surrender Egypt to Octavian and remain a client kingdom of Rome. Octavian had other ideas. Nothing short of a full integration of Egypt into the empire would satisfy him. He would need the wealth of the Nile to secure his rule. Octavian arrived in Egypt in the summer of 30 BC. Since Actium, Cleopatra had distanced herself from Antony out of self-preservation. Antony had spent the time attempting to bolster his position and his defenses. But at this point, their end was inevitable. Gaius Julius Caesar Octavianus brought his armies and put Alexandria under siege. Antony's loyal corps of soldiers put up a brave defense from the walls of the city and repelled Octavian's attacks for all of July. When August came, though, Octavian's superior numbers executed a pincer attack, and in fierce fighting, the exhausted soldiers of Antony were defeated. With the legions closing in, Cleopatra had word sent to Antony that she was committing suicide. Receiving the news, Antony took his dagger and stabbed himself in the stomach. But the wound did a poor job of killing him. He was bleeding out, but slowly. He soon learned that she was not, in fact, dead, but locked up in her tower. He begged his attendants, and they brought him to the tower, where he was pulled up through a window, dying in Cleopatra's arms. Octavian's troops reached the tower soon after, and he allowed Cleopatra to have Antony's body embalmed. As for the queen herself, she would be taken in chains and allowed to live as a prisoner. Octavian desperately wanted to bring her back for his triumph, to parade her as a prisoner before the crowds. 
Queen Cleopatra, heir of Ptolemy, must have felt a life as prisoner was not worth living, and in secret, she had an asp brought to her chamber. She took the snake and forced it to bite her, and she soon died. Robbed of the centerpiece of his triumph, Octavia now showed mercy, and allowed the two to be buried next to each other. Her children from Antony would be spared, but the young Caesarian was not permitted to live. The heritage of the boy was too dangerous for Octavian. The sole survivor of the triumvirate found Egypt's vast treasury intact. He claimed Egypt and made it a province of Rome. Its wealth would now flow into Rome's, and more importantly, his own coffers. The administration of the province was left to the equestrian class. No one of the senatorial class could enter Egypt without Octavian's specific permission. Its wealth was too tempting a target for any would-be challenger. In this end of the war against Antony, Octavian had conquered Egypt and completed Rome's version of Manifest Destiny. All of the realms bordering the Mediterranean now looked to Rome. The death of Antony and Cleopatra marked the last war of the Republic. Octavian now ruled alone. At 33 years old, Gaius Octavianus was the same age as Alexander the Great when he had died. He now ruled an empire that even Alexander would have been envious of, and rather than lying on his deathbed, Octavian had another 44 years to live and rule. Looking back from our vantage point today, it's clear that the Republic had ended and Octavian would reign as the first emperor of the Roman Empire, although at the time, he seemed to be returning things back to normal. He was too smart to abolish the Senate or call himself king or emperor. The Senate would live on for centuries in an increasingly senile state. Octavian held the power, but unlike Caesar, he was patient and careful in wielding it. After his victory over Antony and Cleopatra, Octavian spent the next year administrating the kingdoms and provinces of the East. He finally returned to Italy in the summer of 29 BC. The people and the Senate greeted him with adulation, and his triumph lasted three days. In the city, he ordered the doors of the Temple of Janus closed. Dating back to the reign of Rome's second king, the temple's doors were left open during war and shut during peace. The doors had been left open too long. After two decades of civil war, the Romans were ready for peace. Epilogue With 29 years left, our prologue series isn't quite over, but with the death of Antony and Cleopatra, I think we are free from chronological tyranny for the rest of the episode. The story of the years from where we are to 1 BC can be summarized as such. Octavian carefully and tactfully consolidated his power. Internal war ended, but external war continued. Under Octavian, the borders of the empire were expanded and cleaned up. He tried repeatedly to establish a suitable heir, but eventually settled on his stepson, Tiberius. The first task of Octavian was to deal with the huge number of soldiers at arms after the decades of war. Sixty legions in total had been raised, and more than 300,000 soldiers were at arms. They had all been promised pay, and weren't going to lie down their weapons without it. Fortunately for Octavian, he now found himself the richest man in Rome. From capturing the Egyptian treasury, and from his property acquisitions made during his prescriptions, he had plenty of wealth to pay for half of the soldiers to go home quietly. The rest he kept at arms. 28 legions would be kept in service, guarding the frontiers. 
Octavian gathered the Senate in mid-January of 27 BC. In what is called the First Settlement, he made a show of returning full control of the Republic back to the Senate. You might think the Senate was happy to have its power back, but by now, any ounce of Republican, anti-Octavian thinking had been purged. They voted to give him back full control of all the provinces. Octavian gracefully declined, but then agreed to take control for a term of 10 years the provinces deemed most chaotic. Hispania, Gaul, Syria, Cilicia, Cyprus, and Egypt. Conveniently for Octavian, these were the provinces with more than two-thirds of the legions. The Senate would maintain control of the remaining provinces. Octavian now had legal power over much of the empire, while maintaining the facade of keeping within existing structures. Lastly, the Senate hailed him with two new titles, Augustus and Princeps. Augustus means revered one or illustrious one, and it's the name he is remembered by as the first emperor of Rome. But Augustus was too wise to ever call himself that, instead preferring the second title, Princeps, first citizen. Good old Octavian wasn't trying to make himself king. As the first citizen, he was merely using his steadying hand to rebuild the republic, right? To further legitimize his power, Octavian, who I'll refer to as Augustus from now on, served as one of the two consuls each year until 23 BC. In that year, Augustus became gravely ill. Everyone, including himself, expected he would die. As he lay in his deathbed, many of the senators came to visit him. He could see in their eyes that they were ready for him to go. Two facts became clear to him. He needed a suitable heir, and he needed to change his political role again. To everyone's surprise, he recovered. In 23, he enacted the second settlement with the Senate. Part of the reason the Senate was ready for him to die was that he had spent too many years as one of the two consuls, jamming up the advancement paths of men beneath him on the cursus honorum. Augustus relinquished the consulship, but kept his proconsular authority of the provinces mentioned earlier. In this second settlement, though, Augustus's powers were increased further, and he was given general proconsular authority above any other proconsul for the entire empire. Augustus also took up the powers of a tribune, which both showed his protection for the people and gave him the power to propose and veto legislation and call the Senate. Lastly, to his powers as tribune were added the powers of a censor, allowing him to shape the Senate, call for a census, and enforce morality. Besides this second settlement, his extreme illness had brought the question of who would be his successor to the forefront. He had no legitimate son, and only one daughter, Julia. On what he thought was his deathbed, he had indicated his faithful general, Agrippa, would be his heir. But as he had recovered, it was clear that his nephew, Marcellus, was the preferred choice. To cement this, he arranged the marriage of Marcellus and Julia. Yes, they were cousins. Unfortunately for everyone involved, Marcellus died young in that same year. Now, Augustus pivoted and had his daughter marry Agrippa. Together, they had five children. I wish we had more time to discuss Agrippa. Not only was he a general, but he was also an architect, and with Augustus's funding, he filled Rome with beautiful buildings, including the Pantheon. He died from illness on campaign in 12 BC, while attempting to extend the borders of Rome to the Danube River in Central Europe. Augustus turned next to his grandsons by Agrippa, named Lucius and Gaius Caesar. He returned to the consulship in the year 5 and 2 BC to give each of them a chance to learn to rule from him. Waiting in the wings were two more possible successors, 
His stepsons by his wife Livia. The two boys were Tiberius and Drusus. Augustus seemed to favor the latter. Drusus was awarded the title Germanicus, thanks to his successes there in Germany. He was the first Roman general to lead a major campaign across the Rhine River, and the first Roman to reach the Elbe River in central Germany. He was making good progress in conquering the area between the Rhine and the Elbe when he fell off his horse and died. Another possible successor gone. The campaigns in Germany weren't the only wars of the time. There was peace among Romans, but Augustus was not happy with the fragmented borders of his empire, and he sought to extend them to natural borders. Under his reign, northern Spain, Austria and Switzerland, Hungary, Croatia, Bosnia and Serbia, and inland Albania were added to the empire. Judea was also incorporated as a province, and Galatia and central Anatolia was pacified and annexed. More glorious than any of this, though, was a PR victory. In a deeply embarrassing moment, when Crassus had been killed by the Parthians 30 years earlier, several legionary standards had been captured. Now Augustus, with the help of Agrippa, was able to finally do what Antony could not, and recovered the standards and returned them to the legions. Their shame was over. What could the people say about Augustus transforming their country from a republic to an empire? He had brought them peace, ended their shame, transformed Rome from a city of brick to a city of marble. And he had done all of this humbly, never wearing the purple or parading himself with a crown. They loved him. In his long reign, the people must have felt that they were living at the end of history. Rome was eternal, and the great Augustus had secured his place in the pantheon of Romans. A new golden age of peace and prosperity had dawned. We began these episodes on Rome by claiming that all of Western history is haunted by ancient Rome. It's easy to see why. We have inherited its legal structures, its language, its architecture, its fascination with Greek philosophy, its conversion to Christianity. But two things were not passed down to us, its uniqueness and its unity. Rome was civilization and all of civilization. Everyone else was either a lowly barbarian or a member of some distant alien world, as they viewed the Chinese or the Indians at the time, existing only vaguely out there somewhere to the east. Today, with our hundreds of constantly communicating, yet independently sovereign countries, we can't imagine there being just one option, or one real option. The German barbarians were hardly a country, and the Parthian Empire? Never mind those desert dwellers. Rome, in its single civilization, engulfed all the lands touching the Mediterranean and much of Western Europe. It was the kind of place where soldiers from Syria could be stationed at a fort in northern England, and a fish sauce called garum could be made in Tunisia and shipped to the Rhinelands. There was a political, economic, and to some extent cultural unity that the West has never experienced since then. At the height of Christendom, there were hints of a religious unity. Napoleon came close to achieving a political unity. And today, with our free trade, we have an economic unity that even the Romans couldn't match. But never since the fall of Rome has there been so many kinds of unity over so large an area. This is the end of our prologue episodes. If you've grown attached to Rome, don't worry. We will be spending a lot more time in the civilization, and I can guarantee each of the episodes out to the fall of the Western Roman Empire in 476 AD, that's the first 47 episodes, will deal with Rome. 
I hope these prologues have given us an understanding of how the Roman Empire came to be and how it came to dominate the Mediterranean world. The fact that it never came to dominate all of Europe is a story reserved for next time. I'll see you then. <laughs>